Book One, Chapter Six, Part Three of The Octopus by Frank Norris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. All along one side of the barn were a row of stalls, fourteen of them, clean as yet, redolent of new-cut wood, the sawdust still in the cracks of the flooring. Deliberately the druggist went from one to the other, pausing contemplatively before each. He returned down the line, and again took up his position by the door of the feed-room, nodding his head judicially as if satisfied. He decided to put on his gloves. By now it was quite dark. Outside, between the barn and the ranch houses, one could see a group of men on stepladders lighting the festoons of Japanese lanterns. In the darkness only their faces appeared here and there, high above the ground, seen in a haze of red, strange grotesque. Gradually, as the multitude of lanterns were lit, the light spread. The grass underfoot looked like green excelsior. Another group of men invaded the barn itself, lighting the lamps and lanterns there. Soon the whole place was gleaming with points of light. Young Vaca, who had disappeared, returned with his pockets full of wax candles. He resumed his whittling, refusing to answer any questions, vociferating that he was busy. Outside there was a sound of hooves and voices. More guests had arrived. The druggist, seized with confusion, terrified lest he had put on his gloves too soon, thrust his hands into his pockets. It was Cutter, Magnus Derrick's division superintendent, who came, bringing his wife and her two girl cousins. They had come fifteen miles by the trail from the far distant division house on four of Los Muertos, and had ridden on horseback instead of driving. Mrs. Cutter could be heard declaring that she was nearly dead, and felt more like going to bed than dancing. The two girl cousins, in dresses of dotted Swiss over blue sateen, were doing their utmost to pacify her. She could be heard protesting from moment to moment. One distinguished the phrases, straight to my bed, back nearly broken in two, never wanted to come in the first place. The druggist, observing Cutter take a pair of gloves from Mrs. Cutter's reticule, drew his hands from his pockets. But abruptly there was an interruption. In the musician's corner a scuffle broke out, a chair was overturned, there was a noise of imprecations mingling with shouts of derision. Skeezicks, the Frenchman, had turned upon the jotchers. Ah, no! he was heard to exclaim. At the end, of the end it is too much. Kind of a bad canary. We will go to see about that. Aha! Let him close up his face before I demolish it with a good stroke of the fist. The men who were lighting the lanterns were obliged to intervene before he could be placated. Hooven and his wife and daughters arrived. Minna was carrying little Hilda, already asleep, in her arms. Minna looked very pretty, striking even with her black hair, pale face, very red lips, and greenish-blue eyes. She was dressed in what had been Mrs. Hooven's wedding gown, a cheap affair of farmer's satin. Mrs. Hooven had pendant earrings of imitation jet in her ears. Hooven was wearing an old frock-coat of Magnus Derrick's, the sleeves too long, the shoulders absurdly too wide. He and Cutter at once entered into an excited conversation as to the ownership of a certain steer. Why, the brand! Ach, Gott! The brand! Hooven clasped his head. Ach, the brand! That makes me laugh some laughs. That's good. The brand! Don't I see him? 
sure the bull with the black star by the forehead in the middle of any somebody any summons you ask tell that that is mine bull you ask any summons the print <laughs> the helmet the print you you ain't got some memory about this thing i guess not so step aside gentlemen said young vaca who was still making the rounds of the floor hooven whirled about eh? what then he exclaimed still excited willing to be angry at anyone for the moment don't you push so you, you, you i think perhaps you don't own this barn huh i'm busy i'm very busy the young man pushed by with grave preoccupation two quarts and a half two quarts and a half i know better that's all rot but the barn was filling up rapidly at every moment there was a rattle of newly arrived vehicle from outside guest after guest appeared in the doorway singly or in couples or in families or in garrulous parties of five and six now it was phelps and his mother from los muertos now a foreman from broderson's with his family now a gaily apparelled clerk from a bonneville store solitary and bewildered looking for a place to put his hat now a couple of spanish-mexican girls from guadalajara with coquettish effects of black and yellow about their dress now a group of Osterman's tenants, Portuguese, swarthy, with plastered hair and curled moustaches, redolent of cheap perfumes. Saria arrived, his smooth, shiny face glistening with perspiration. He wore a new cassock and carried his broad-brimmed hat under his arm. His appearance made quite a stir. He passed from group to group, urbane, affable, shaking hands right and left, he assumed a set smile of amiability which never left his face the whole evening. But abruptly there was a veritable sensation. From out the little crowd that persistently huddled about the doorway came Osterman. He wore a dress suit with a white waistcoat and patent leather pumps. What a wonder! A little qualm of excitement spread about the barn. One exchanged nudges of the elbow with one's neighbor, whispering earnestly behind the hand what astonishing clothes catch on to the coat-tails it was a masquerade costume maybe that goat osterman was such a josher one never could tell what he would do next the musicians began to tune up from their corner came a medley of mellow sounds the subdued chirps of the violins the dull burden of the bass viol the liquid gurgling of the flageolet and the deep-toned snarl of the big horn with now and then a rasmant stridulating of the snare-drum. A sense of gaiety began to spread throughout the assembly. At every moment the crowd increased. The aroma of new sawn timber and sawdust began to be mingled with the feminine odor of sachet and flowers. There was a babel of talk in the air, male baritone and soprano chatter, varied by an occasional note of laughter, and the swish of stiffly starched petticoats, on the row of chairs that went around three sides of the wall, groups began to settle themselves. For a long time the guests huddled close to the doorway. The lower end of the floor was crowded, the upper end deserted. But by degrees the lines of white muslin and pink and blue sateen extended, dotted with the darker figures of men in black suits. The conversation grew louder as the timidity of the early moments wore off. Groups at a distance called back and forth. Conversations were carried on at top voice. Once, even a whole party hurried across the floor from one side of the barn to the other. Annixter emerged from the harness room, his face red with wrangling. 
He took a position to the right of the door, shaking hands with newcomers, inviting them over and over again to cut loose and whoop it along. Into the ears of his more intimate male acquaintances he dropped a word as to punch and cigars in the harness room later on, winking with vast intelligence. Ranchers from remoter parts of the country appeared, Garnett from the Ruby Rancho, Keast from the ranch of the same name, Gethings of the San Pablo, Chattern of the Bonanza, and others and still others, a score of them, elderly men for the most part, bearded, slow of speech, deliberate, dressed in broadcloth. Old Broderson, who entered with his wife on his arm, fell in with this type, and with them came a certain Dabney, of whom nothing but his name was known, a silent old man, who made no friends, whom nobody knew or spoke to, who was seen only upon such occasions as this, coming from no one knew where, going, no one cared to inquire whither. Between eight and half-past, Magnus Derrick and his family were seen. Magnus's entry caused no little impression. Some said, "'There's the governor!' and, calling their companion's attention to the thin, erect figure, commanding, imposing, dominating all in his immediate neighborhood. Harran came with him, wearing a cutaway suit of black. He was undeniably handsome, young and fresh-looking, his cheeks highly colored, quite the finest-looking of all the younger men, blond, strong, and with that certain courtliness of manner that had always made him liked. He took his mother upon his arm and conducted her to a seat by the side of Mrs. Broderson. Annie Derrick was very pretty that evening. She was dressed in a gray silk gown with a collar of pink velvet. Her light brown hair that yet retained so much of its brightness was transfixed in a high shell comb, very Spanish. But the look of uneasiness in her large eyes, the eyes of a young girl, was deepening every day. The expression of innocence and inquiry which they so easily assumed was disturbed by a faint suggestion of aversion, almost of terror. She settled herself in her place, in the corner of the hall, in the rear rank of chairs, a little frightened by the glare of lights, the hum of talk, and the shifting crowd, glad to be out of the way, to attract no attention, willing to obliterate herself. All at once Annixter, who had just shaken hands with Dyke, his mother, and the little Tad, moved abruptly in his place, drawing in his breath sharply. The crowd around the great, wide-open main door of the barn had somewhat thinned out, and in the few groups that still remained there he had suddenly recognized Mr. and Mrs. Tree and Hilma, making their way toward some empty seats near the entrance of the feed room. In the dusky light of the barn earlier in the evening, Annixter had not been able to see Hilma plainly. Now, however, as she passed before his eyes in the glittering radiance of the lamps and lanterns, he caught his breath in astonishment. Never had she appeared more beautiful in his eyes. It did not seem possible that this was the same girl whom he saw every day in and around the ranch house and dairy, the girl of simple calico frocks and plain shirt-waists who brought him his dinner who made up his bed. Now he could not take his eyes from her. Hilma, for the first time, was wearing her hair done high upon her head. The thick, sweet-smelling masses, bitumen brown in the shadows, coruscated like golden filaments in the light. Her organdy frock was long, longer than any she had yet worn. It left a little of her neck and breast bare, and all of her arm. 
Annixter muttered an exclamation. Such arms! How did she manage to keep them hid on ordinary occasions? Big at the shoulder, tapering with delicious modulations to the elbow, and wrist overlaid with a delicate, gleaming luster. As often as she turned her head, the movement set a slow undulation over her neck and shoulders, the pale amber-tinted shadows under her chin coming and going over the creamy whiteness of the skin like the changing moiré of silk. The pretty rose color of her cheek had deepened to a pale carnation. Annixter, his hands clasped behind him, stood watching. In a few moments Hilma was surrounded by a group of young men clamoring for dances. They came from all corners of the barn, leaving the other girls precipitately, almost rudely. There could be little doubt as to who was to be the belle of the occasion. Hilma's little triumph was immediate, complete. Annixter could hear her voice from time to time, its usual velvety huskiness vibrating to a note of exuberant gaiety. All at once the orchestra swung off into a march, the grand march. There was a great rush to secure partners. Young Vaca, still going the rounds, was pushed to one side. The gaily apparelled clerk from the Bonneville store lost his head in the confusion. He could not find his partner. He roamed wildly about the barn, bewildered, his eyes rolling. He resolved to prepare an elaborate program card on the back of an old envelope. Rapidly the line was formed, Hilma and Harron Derrick in the lead. Annixter, having obstinately refused to engage in either march, set, or dance the whole evening. Soon the confused shuffling of feet settled to a measured cadence. The orchestra blared and wailed, the snare drum rolling at exact intervals, the cornet marking the time. It was half-past eight o'clock. Annixter drew a long breath. Good, he muttered. The thing is under way at last. Singularly enough, Osterman also refused to dance. The week before he had returned from Los Angeles, bursting with the importance of his mission. He had been successful. He had Disbrow in his pocket. He was impatient to pose before the others of the committee as a skillful political agent, a manipulator. He forgot his attitude of the early part of the evening when he had drawn attention to himself with his wonderful clothes. Now his comic actor's face, with its brownish-red cheeks, protuberant ears, and horizontal slit of a mouth, was overcast with gravity. His bald forehead was seamed with the wrinkles of responsibility. He drew Annixter into one of the empty stalls and began an elaborate explanation, glib, voluble, interminable, going over again in detail what he had reported to the committee in outline. I managed, I schemed, I kept dark, I lay low. But Annixter refused to listen. Oh, rot your schemes. There's a punch in the harness room that'll make the hair grow on the top of your head in the place where the hair ought to grow. Come on, we'll round up some of the boys and walk into it. They edged their way around the hall outside the Grand March, toward the harness room, picking up on their way Carraher, Dyke, Hooven, and old Broderson. Once in the harness room, Annixter shot the bolt. That affair outside, he observed, they'll take care of itself. But uh, here's a little orphan child that gets lonesome without company. Annixter began ladling the punch, filling the glasses. Osterman proposed a toast to Quien Sabe and the biggest barn. Their elbows crooked in silence. Old Broderson set down his glass, wiping his long beard and remarking, 
that was certainly a very <laughs> certainly very very agreeable <laughs> i remember a punch i drank on uh, christmas day in eighty three oh no no it was uh, eighty four anyhow that punch it was in ukiah no it was eighty three he wandered on aimlessly unable to stop his flow of speech losing himself in details involving his talk in a hopeless maze of trivialities to which nobody paid any attention i don't drink myself observed dyke but just a taste of that with a lot of water wouldn't be bad for the little tad uh, she'd think it was lemonade he was about to mix a glass for sydney but thought better of it at the last moment it's the chartreuse that's lacking commented carraher lowering at annixter the other flared up on the instant rot rot i know better in some punches it goes and then again in others it don't but it was left to hooven to launch the successful phrase gesundheit he exclaimed holding out his second glass after drinking he replaced it on the table with a long breath ah gut he cried that punch <laughs> say i think that punch makes some damn good fertilizer eh? fertilizer the others roared with laughter good eye bismarck commented annixter the name had a great success thereafter throughout the evening the punch was invariably spoken of as the fertilizer osterman having spilt the bottom of a glass full on the floor pretended that he saw shoots of grain coming up on the spot suddenly he turned upon old broderson i'm bald ain't i want to know how i lost my hair promise you won't ask a single other question and i'll tell you promise your word of honor yeah well i well, don't well, i don't understand your, your hair yeah yeah i promise how did you lose it it was bit off the other gazed at him stupefied his jaw dropped the company shouted and old broderson believing he had somehow accomplished a witticism chuckled in his beard wagging his head but suddenly he fell grave struck with an idea he demanded yes i i i know but but what bit it off ah vociferated osterman that's just what you promised not to ask the company doubled up with hilarity carraher leaned against the door holding his sides but hooven all abroad unable to follow gazed from face to face with a vacant grin thinking it was still a question of his famous phrase fertilizer eh got some fine joke huh <laughs> you bet what with the noise of their talk and laughter it was some time before dyke first of all heard a persistent knocking on the bolted door he called annixter's attention to the sound cursing the intruder annixter unbolted and opened the door but at once his manner changed hello it's presley come in come in pres there was a shout of welcome from the others a spirit of effusive cordiality had begun to dominate the gathering annixter caught sight of vanamee back of presley and waiving for the moment the distinction of employer and employee insisted that both the friends should come in any friend of pres is my friend he declared but when the two had entered and had exchanged greetings, Presley drew Annixter aside. Vanamee and I have just come from Bonneville, he explained. We saw Delaney there. He's got the buckskin, and he's full of bad whiskey, and they go red. You should see him. He's wearing all his cow-punching outfit, ha hair trousers, sombrero, spurs, and all the rest of it, and he has strapped himself to a big revolver. 
He says he wasn't invited to your barn dance, but that he's coming over to shoot up the place. He says you promised to show him off Keen Sabe at the toe of your boot, and that he's going to give you the chance tonight. Ah, commented Annixter, nodding his head. He is, is he? Presley was disappointed. Knowing Annixter's irascibility, he had expected to produce a more dramatic effect. He began to explain the danger of the business. Delaney had once knifed a greaser in the Panamint country. He was known as a bad man, but Annixter refused to be drawn. All right, he said, that's all right. Don't tell anybody else. You might scare the girls off. Get in and drink. Outside the dancing was by this time in full swing. The orchestra was playing a polka. Young Vaca, now at his fiftieth wax candle, had brought the floor to the slippery surface of glass. The druggist was dancing with one of the Spanish-Mexican girls with the solemnity of an automaton, turning about and about, always in the same direction, his eyes glassy, his teeth set. Hilma Tree was dancing for the second time with Harron Derrick. She danced with infinite grace. Her cheeks were bright red, her eyes half-closed, and through her parted lips she drew from time to time a long, tremulous breath of pure delight. The music, the weaving colors, the heat of the air, by now a little oppressive, the monotony of repeated sensation, even the pain of physical fatigue, had exalted all her senses. She was in a dreamy lethargy of happiness. It was her first ball. She could have danced without stopping until morning. Minna Hooven and Cutter were promenading. Mrs. Hooven, with little Hilda, already asleep on her knees, never took her eyes from her daughter's gown. As often as Minna passed near her, she vented an energetic psst, psst. The metal tip of a white drawstring was showing from underneath the waist of Minna's dress. Mrs. Hooven was on the point of tears. The solitary, gaily-appareled clerk from Bonneville was in a fever of agitation. He had lost his elaborate program card. Bewildered, beside himself with trepidation, he hurried about the room, jostled by the dancing couples, tripping over the feet of those who were seated. He peered distressfully under the chairs and about the floor, asking anxious questions. Magnus Derrick, the center of a listening circle of ranchers, Garnett from the Ruby Rancho, Keast from the ranch of the same name, Gethings and Chattern of the San Pablo and Bonanza, stood near the great open doorway of the barn, discussing the possibility of a shortage in the world's wheat crop for the next year. Abruptly the orchestra ceased playing with a roll of the snare drum, a flourish of the cornet, and a prolonged growl of the bass viol. The dance broke up, the couples hurrying to their seats, leaving the gaily apparelled clerk suddenly isolated in the middle of the floor, rolling his eyes. The druggist released the Spanish-Mexican girl with mechanical precision, out amidst the crowd of dancers. He bowed, dropping his chin upon his cravat. Throughout the dance neither had hazarded a word. The girl found her way alone to a chair, but the druggist, sick from continually revolving in the same direction, walked unsteadily toward the wall. All at once the barn reeled around him. He fell down. There was a great laugh, but he scrambled to his feet and disappeared abruptly out into the night through the doorway of the barn, deathly pale, his hand upon his stomach. End of Book One, Chapter Six, Part Three